This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm so excited for today's guest, Medal of Honor recipient, Kyle Carpenter. Kyle, welcome to the Resilient Life. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Yeah. Always uh, good to be with you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So Kyle and I just actually had, well, well I just had the honor of um, hosting Kyle at the Travis Mannion Foundation Gala. He was our guest speaker this year. And, um, you know, Kyle, I have to tell you, um, we this was our ninth or 10th year for, for our, our TMF Gala. Um, and every year, our guest of honor has always been a senior level um, service member. So, you know, we've had the, we've had a few Marine Corps commandants. We're a little bit biased. Um, but, you know, former chairmen of the Joint Chief, all very senior level. And it's kind of just been our thing. Like, okay, well, who are we going to get to kind of talk about where we are in the world today from a military perspective? And... Um, I will tell you that it was actually General Dumford who uh, sits on our board. Um, and as we were talking about who our guest of honor would would be this year, and you know, he has obviously so many connections to fantastic senior military leaders. And he said, you know, I, I, I'd like to suggest Kyle Carpenter as our, our guest speaker this year. And I mean, it was unanimous. We were all like, yes, yes. And so you came and when you got behind the mic and, you know, it was, um, it was such a great night and there were so many tremendous speakers and we had those, the gentlemen of vision, those young kids from Missouri that did that awesome performance. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always kind of like checking my watch at the gala because it's like, you've got the guest speaker and they're the last speaker of the night. And there have been years. And I'll tell you, actually, when General Dumford was our speaker, our guest speaker, um, he had come up against a really long night and he had his binder because he was the chairman at the time. So he had very, you know, his rehearsed remarks. He came up behind the podium and he was like, listen, I've got these prepared remarks, but the night is running late. And he shortened them down, you know, quick and sweet and, you know, got said what he had to say, got off the stage. Um, and you got up there that night and you could have heard a pin drop and there's something about the way, and I'm sure you've heard this before, there's certainly something about the way that you speak, um, your measure tone, your emotion, your, your everything about when you get up behind a microphone, like people want to listen. And so a um, little compliment to you. I, I, I can only imagine you don't have any professional public speaking uh, training, but um, I'm sure it comes from learned experience of all your times being able to do it. You, you have a tremendous way of really galvanizing the group that you're talking to. So thank you. Thank you for uh, participating in our event. Thank you for opening our eyes that we don't always need uh, the person with the biggest brass uh, behind the microphone at the end of the night and um, really inspiring our, our group in such a big way. Continue to hear so many things about your remarks that night and how people were really inspired by them. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Um, uh, you know, that never gets any less humbling. I think that's really the only way to, uh, to summarize all that. Starting with General Dunford, who now I consider a friend and for many years has been just an incredible fellow Marine and mentor. Um, but you're right. It is just learn from experience and consciously making the effort although for many years I was just trying to survive event to event and as you know we talked about I was just running myself into the ground and trying to learn how to be the recipient I could be and learning how to just be the person I wanted to be and the wounded warrior and marine veteran and so but going through all those events whether it was five minutes or an hour worth of remarks, 
I've always kept a notepad and notes on my iPad. And, you know, after, after an event, just thinking about things and so much of my journey and I believe should be everyone's journey and time throughout their life, just make an effort to sit and think. Block off some quiet time as much as you can, cut out the noise and just think about, hey, who am I? Where have I been? Where am I now? Where am I going? And, um, you know, after those events, just thinking about what I said and wondering, oh, could I have said that a little better? Or could I have told a more fitting story there? And as life goes on, things evolve. But uh, yeah, just making an effort to always try to get a little bit better with whatever that is, but speaking especially just, and, and even down to little things like, you know, uh, reading the audience and uh, expressing genuine gratitude, which it is for being there. And like I said, everything that I do, big or small in life, um, and especially events like that with so many incredible people under one roof, um, I, constantly can't help but think, you know, wow, I was almost never here to experience this. So I am truly grateful. And I think above all, I've learned that, uh, like I said, at the event, it drives my parents crazy when I don't have a long list of notes prepared. But uh, on top of just deeply thinking about events I'm going to and the audience, um, I've learned through my journey that it's really like 50% uh, being as prepared as possible and the other 50% uh, kind of winging it, but ultimately just speaking from the heart and, and just talking to people like they are, just people on the same journey as you going through similar and sometimes um, very similar struggles as you. Yeah. I, I cannot relate to that more because I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller by, by heart. Like I have a really hard time coming up to a podium with like prepared remarks and, you know, I'm, I'm the one that has a couple bullet points, but I kind of just, a lot of times let my remarks take me where they're going to take me um, with the audience. And like you said, reading the audience, understanding, you know, um, the audience and, and what they're looking for. So I, I totally relate to that. Um, I want to, I want to go back, um, you know, and talk a little bit about your background. Um, and I think it's important for people to know, you talk about, uh, you said, you know, I didn't know if uh, you think about sometimes you don't, you didn't know if you were even going to have the opportunity to, to be in certain places. And, um, I want people to know that story. Um, you know, you, um, you grew up in the Southeast Mississippi and then moved to South Carolina. Um, and you enlisted in the Marine Corps at 19 years old. Uh, you completed your recruit training in July of 2009. And by September of 2009, you were out the door on your way to Helmand province in Afghanistan. Um, you were a gunner with the second battalion, ninth Marines, uh, on November 21st, 2009, your life changed. And I'd love if you're comfortable kind of walking us through that day. Absolutely. So myself and my fellow Marines, we were four months into our seven month deployment in Afghanistan. And just a quick summary of those four months, every single day from sunup to sundown uh, was a um, constant and um, at times vicious fight for survival. And every single night uh, when you laid your head down on the dirt or uh, if the Marine Corps loved you enough to send you a cot and a pillow uh, to lay down at night. And uh, it, it was impossible not to have the thoughts of not only, wow, I can't believe I made it through today, but also is tomorrow you know, is tomorrow it? Is tomorrow my time going to uh, to end? And so, um, it was uh, a wake up call, not only to just combat, but um, beyond that, to 
the way of life and at times very sad, uh, the living conditions and situation of the people of Afghanistan. And so, uh, but, you know, while wondering if tomorrow was going to be my last day, I was always comforted by the fact that I, you know, all the big political reasons aside, I truly believed and felt like uh, we were there as boots on the ground, ultimately just trying to help these people and give them a more hopeful uh, sunrise than the day before. And so uh, fast forward to November 21st, the day of my injury, uh, roughly a day and a half at the very most two days before Myself and my squad, led by our Marine Corps squad leader, we, um, I guess, embarked on a mission to move south of the village and our position and our compound that we had been living and operating in and out of for those four months. And we were pushing south to take over a new compound in a new village. And when you're over the halfway mark of a deployment, obviously you're looking ahead towards the end of your deployment and when more Marines are gonna come relieve you. So like everything I believe in life, you should try to leave it better than you found it. So when that time comes to start looking towards that transfer of, of power in Marines, you want to have expanded your area of operation, even if it's just a little bit. And theoretically, if every unit that comes in and every deployment does that, you continually expand not only your area of operation, but with that, creating more stability. You know, with that stability, building more schools, digging more wells, infrastructure. And so that was the first mission of what was going to be uh, multiple to take over that ground and that compound and stand our ground and hold it until days or weeks later when um, the Marines that were still back at the other village where we had lived and operated would come and relieve us and then we could go rest and things like that. But essentially our mission was to pack as much as we could in a bag, grab our weapons, you know, hike roughly a mile to a mile and a half down to this Southern village, take over this compound, and try to survive for the next four or five days until that relief came. Very shortly after we made it to the compound, which we started getting shot at halfway down, so it was not a good start, but we take over the compound and almost immediately um, the first grenade attack came. And grenade attacks and small arms fire, AK-47s, were pretty constant for the next day and a half until the day of my injury. The morning of November 21st, I woke up around 7.45, just before eight sometime. And I woke up to our base getting attacked. And there, again, there was only one squad of us in this compound. And uh, I heard the AK-47 fire and the last thing I remember from the entire day before late that afternoon when I was injured is I was woken up by the AK-47 fire. I rolled over in my sleeping bag. I unzipped it. And I remember thinking, you know, here we go. Here we go again, another day in Afghanistan. And that's the last thing I remember until myself and a fellow Marine, a best friend. He was my point man, Nikki Frazio we were on top of this roof together. And we call it standing post, where anyone listening not familiar with military terminology, we were essentially on a lookout position. We were on top of this roof, providing watch and cover for the Marines inside the compound who were eating, sleeping, cleaning their weapons, not on watch. And so our shifts at that time were four hours. And we were so close to ending our shift and getting relieved by the next two Marines that those two Marines that were relieving us were gearing up. And one was 
I believe had already started climbing the bamboo ladder to get to us on the roof. And uh, Nick and I had been brainstorming scenarios, not that you can ever perfectly prepare for combat scenarios, but just to get, if at all possible, a quicker reaction. If they attack from this street or this alleyway, you'll do this, I'll do this, vice versa. And um, ironically, the last thing I remember saying is, Nick, what happens when a grenade comes on up on this route? And uh, it was half joking, half serious. Anyone that knows and has been there knows that Marines um, uh, use dark humor to get through certain tense or scary situations. And so I asked him this and he said, you know, my ass is off this roof. And I said, dude, I'm right behind you. <laughs> the next thing I knew, I felt like I had been hit really hard in the face. Uh, my vision immediately was as if I was looking at a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. My ears were ringing extremely loud, just as they are this very moment that we're doing this podcast. And uh, initial thoughts was pure confusion. I thought, okay, the, the last thing I can remember, I'm, I'm almost certain I was in Afghanistan on a deployment. But beyond that, I'm pretty sure I was on a roof but maybe I got off of the roof, went on a foot patrol and stepped on an IED because I don't know what could have injured me. If I'm injured, whatever this weird sensation is, uh, I don't know what could have done this to me on top of a roof. And uh, those trying to put the pieces together were interrupted by uh, the sensation of what I thought was my fellow Marines messing with me. Uh, I thought someone was pouring warm water all over me. And again, I was very disoriented. And so I was struggling like, okay, now warm water, like what is the deal? And that final confusing piece allowed the other ones to fall into place. And I realized that my buddies weren't messing with me. It wasn't warm water that I was bleeding out. And so with that realization, um, I knew that my time was inevitably limited. And so I thought about my family and specifically my mom and how devastated she was going to be when, um, you know, she got that call or that government car pulled up in her driveway. And uh, the last thing that I did was I said a quick prayer for forgiveness and anything I had done wrong in my life. And I faded from consciousness in the world for what I thought was the last time. But to my very happy and pleasant surprise, uh, I woke up five weeks later after going through multiple combat trauma hospitals while teams of people, incredible people that I'll never even probably get to meet you know, gave every ounce of effort and themselves that they could to keep me alive. And uh, from that team effort through multiple hospitals and countries, uh, you know, ended and began at Walter Reed when I woke up five weeks later. And that was really the start of um, this um, beautiful, but at times very painful journey that I've been on these now, uh, 11 years. You know, for those that, again, aren't super familiar with military terminology, um, those that are wounded in service um, and, you know, catastrophically wounded like yourself, uh, you'll call your the day you were injured your alive day. And I have a lot of friends that celebrate their alive day. And, um, what you didn't explain in, in that, um, recap of November 21st is that you jumped on that grenade and, and saved the, the Marine that was beside you on that rooftop, um, and were 
uh, awarded the Medal of Honor for your actions that day, the, the highest achievement um, and recognition you can receive. Kyle, I was trying to think um, of when it was, and, and I'm pretty sure it was 2011 because uh, the first time I met you, you certainly would not remember it and I wouldn't expect you to, but um, I, I, I'm almost positive it was 2011 because my mom was there. My mom passed in 2012 and it was at the Commandant's um, uh, holiday gathering at the Commandant's house. It was General Amos at the time. And you came with your mom and I think you were still at Walter Reed at the time, possibly. Um, but you came with your mom and you were standing there and um, you, I remember seeing you for the first time and your face was covered in shrapnel and you were standing next to, and I'll never forget because we got in the car and I actually said to my dad and my mom, like, I was, I was blown away that you were standing there, frankly. And you were standing next to the Christmas tree that was lit up with, and the lights from the tree, uh, that Christmas tree, were almost lighting up the pieces of metal in your face as you were standing there. And I could tell even looking at you that you were in pain. Um, but you stood there so proudly next to your mom and everyone wanted to shake your hand and everyone wanted to you know, just be introduced to you. And, and you were there for a while. And, 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 you know, my mom, my dad and I um, all had the opportunity to meet you that night. And I remember being so affected. Um, and it was just a few years after my brother had been killed. And I remember thinking like, just the amount of, you know, losing Travis was, was devastated, devastating, but also watching your mom standing there it was equally as devastating, I'm sure, for her to see her son in so much physical and I'm sure a lot of mental pain at the time, too. And um, but I walked away like really admiring your strength. And and again, I, I I'm sure you don't remember that night because it was probably a blur for you. But um, it was something that that really has has stuck with me for, you know, 10 years now. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, good news is I do remember, but things obviously did become more clear as I continued to heal up. And the crazy part is, um, well, this isn't the crazy part. It sounds crazy, but I spent three years at Walter Reed until 2013. Um, and I guess because it was such an official, okay, hey, you're done recovering on this date. You medically retired. Oh, great. I'm free. I'm starting college. I'm doing good. I'm fully recovered. But then I realized, especially now looking back, even 2013, the rest of that year after I got out of the hospital and that freshman year at USC, um, really up until my Medal of Honor ceremony, mid-2014, uh, I was still healing. And I didn't even know it. And I think physically or mentally and emotionally, that happens to a, a lot of us in life. You, you look back and you don't realize how much you, how far you came or how much you still needed or need to heal. And so, uh, but um, as I've been from the moment I woke up, uh, I'm just so grateful to be here that moments like that to not stand is, you know, especially when I was about to leave that Christmas party, go back to Walter Reed, and I'm surrounded by those that are missing one, two, three, or all four of their limbs. Yeah. You know, those that um, not just kept me in check, but really kept me going. The quadruple amputees with a smile on their face, you know, with what's left of their arms, zooming their wheelchair to therapy every day and just getting better and crushing it. Um, so, you know, I didn't have any other choice but to stand there. And, uh, but you are right. Uh, it was extremely hard on my parents, um, uh, my mom, who 
just like she did for me 32 years ago now, you know, she was hopefully and lovingly preparing for life and for me to wake up in the hospital. And um, I might've said it at the gala, but you know, the first thing that I remember when I opened the only I had left in the hospital was bright red Christmas stockings, which were very confusing at first uh, until I found out that I was on the other side of the world. <laughs> that was snow on the outside of my hospital room window instead of dust from Afghanistan. But when I got a hold of things, realizing that she had decorated my room for the holidays um, and I had been out for you know almost five weeks uh, to you know, through the year, month, really the first year, um, but the first month and the first year of my recovery, most of my teeth had been blown out. But with my arms and hands not working because of the nerve damage for her to brush the few teeth I had left every day and uh she says I drove her crazy because even when I was like a toddler playing baseball and my parents helped me get dressed for some reason a little thing with me has always been socks got to be perfect or if they're all bunched up or lopsided in your shoe it drives me crazy so that hasn't changed so in the <laughs> hospital she's like really you gotta put your socks on again but uh you know uh, not only did she show me really what a parent's unconditional love looks like, but her obviously along with my family helped me get back on my feet and helped pu push me to become better and um, stay true to myself. And, um, you know, it's not fun having to be showered by your mom or go to the bathroom in a bedpan with seven people surrounding your bed or um, so those things help push me to get better too. But, uh, I got my socks down eight months after getting injured. I, I put my first sock back on. That's awesome. I, I have a seven-year-old that is very particular about his socks. <laughs> so I, I understand that. And, you know, I, I, I've told you many a times, um, I am, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm an even bigger fan of your mom's. Uh, she is so incredible. Um, I love every time I get the chance to talk to her and she, she just espouses like what a mom is, right? Like she's just, she's like the mom's yeah. mom and, um, <laughs> she's so proud of, of you and all her kids. You know, I, I follow her friends on, on social media and you just see the pride she has for her children and the love she has for her family. And you know, you are, you, you obviously know how fortunate you were to have her by your side. Um, I was doing some research looking through on your website and, and, uh, you know, around the early days of your journey, you know, you talk about obviously the physical challenges, um, that you had to overcome, but, um, you had, you had described being in the kitchen and not being able to have all the skills um, to seamlessly move about and take care of yourself. And, you know, learning to live with one eye, your body, you know, had been torn apart. And you have this story about your mom walking in and, um, you know, you say something to the effect of, no one's gonna love me again. And, and you break down in your mom's arms. Um, can, can you share that story with us and, and that moment? Because, you know, again, I think what's harder to comprehend outside of the, the physical challenges that you were facing um, is some of the mental anguish um, that, that you have to overcome when you're dealt with something like this. And um, I'd love for people to understand what you were feeling in that moment and ultimately what you did to help yourself work out of that, that place. Yeah, great point, and thank you. Um, so just for a little bit of context, I was at Walter Reed, you know, almost my entire three years of recovery. After the first couple months of ICU, more of the life-saving, hey, we hope to keep this guy breathing type of care. When I got unhooked from all my machines and 
I got a little bit stronger and I was able to very, very slowly and steady start standing up and taking steps, knowing that I had years of recovery left. We had already been at Walter Reed for a few months. So the chain of command and the Marine Corps there and my leadership got to know my family. They got to know me. And knowing that I had such a long recovery, uh, we all were in agreement that it would be good for me to go home for a few weeks to a couple of months while still doing therapy every day and spend some time at home, get away from the hospital, eat mom's amazing food. She's a great caretaker, but even better cook. And, uh, you know, at home with the family dog and my brothers. And so that was obviously extremely welcome. And uh, so I go home and you're correct. I was still um, uh, very much not just early on in my recovery, but I still needed a vast amount of surgeries to repair everything that they thought they could and needed to. And so some of my worst injuries and still that affect me to this day is the extensive nerve damage in my arms. So I was at home. It was around nine or 10 at night. Uh, like I said, I did therapy every day and that hour or two of therapy would usually wipe me out. So I was doing good to stay up as late as I was. And um, I tried to be a big bad Marine and make myself a bowl of cereal. And uh, it was just me. It was almost like a movie-like setting. It was kind of dim and dark in the kitchen, probably because I was trying to be sneaky because mom helped me with everything. And I was getting to that point where like, okay, you know, I can do this mom. Like, you know, yeah, I got my, uh, I got my, what do they call it? Uh, oh, well, I can't remember. Grenade burn, but uh, independence. independence. Got, got some independence back. And uh, so I grabbed the milk, which felt like it weighed 100 pounds. Cereal is a struggle to pour, but I accomplished the mission. I got this bowl of cereal made, but that was only half the battle. I sit down and like the grenade blew most of my teeth out. Along with that was nerve damage. And so, uh, and I'm pretty sure for healing purposes, they had fused and sewn my lower lip to my gum so it could heal and the blood vessels could come back before like a year, year and a half later, they would start hopefully with new bone growth, potentially putting in dental implants and screwing fixtures into my bone. But you got to have good blood flow. So they sewed my lip down. So it wasn't a good setup for eating. And uh, I'm eating this cereal. And I couldn't really tell how messy I was being, but I knew it wasn't it wasn't good. And uh, I was just struggling to eat it. And I couldn't even hold the spoon right because of this nerve damage. And uh, I would say I don't know why I completely broke in that moment. But after the fact and many years later, going back and examining it, it was the first time really since I joined the military that it was silent. My hospital room had been chaotic for months. Rounds started at 4 a.m. They ended at 10 p.m. You had um, um, like the breathing specialist coming by throughout the night and pounding this thing on your back to keep like your lungs, I guess, awake, which it worked. Uh, and so you're always kind of being bothered for good reason, but it was silent. And so it was kind of the first time I 100% while being defeated by this bowl of cereal, sit there in the dark by myself, just me, myself, and this new body and new kind of person that was sitting here. And I completely broke. And my mom rushes in and rightfully so, you know, are you in pain? What happened? And, and like you said, I just looked at her and I said, Look at me. Who's ever going to love me again? And in that moment, I hated that I said it uh, because I saw that it immediately tore my mom's heart into pieces. And she had been so strong until that point. And so I hated bringing her down with me. 
But I'm so thankful I said it too. And I'm so thankful I hit rock bottom because sometimes as hard as it is, I've realized that you have to hit those rock bottom moments and those uncertain lowest of low moments, physically, mentally, or emotionally. It's really relatively all the same. I realize you've got to hit those moments because in saying that hopeless, you know, down and out type of question and comment, it, it almost like boomeranged right back around and gave me a hard reality check. And I'm like, I'm sitting here so tore up, like I've got all this healing to do. And I'm so tore up about something that has already happened. I can't change it. And in realizing that, I realized that the past is truly the past. That there's no question we can ask. There's nothing we can do. No amount of work. Nothing to get one second back of our time and our life, which is so precious. And so going through those next few minutes in that moment, as my mom hugged me and told me that someone, you know, one day would not only love me, but love me forever, love me for me. And this would just all be a distant, you know, painful memory of the past. But in summary, through all of that, I realized that when we get knocked down or blown up in life, uh, in those moments, if you cut out the noise, you cut out all the options you think you have, you cut out the regret of you know, whatever brought you to that moment, I realize we only really ever have two choices. And that is we can get up and take that small, probably very shaky, unsteady foot forward or we're going to sit at that kitchen counter for the rest of our life and so uh yeah i'm just thankful that uh i experienced that adversity because those difficult moments which they're uh they were plentiful throughout my recovery and my journey um those moments uh, of getting knocked down or not being able to get all the way up or those moments of you know, lying there in the hospital bed through those long, dark and painful nights, just searching for any faint silver lining. You know, those moments uh, teach us as hard as they are. They help us grow. They, they, and, and you know, people kill me sometimes. They'll say, oh, well, you know, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Or, you know, they just sit there and beat themselves up. And, yes, yeah, some stuff is bad. It's hard to live with. Mistakes are painful sometimes. But ultimately, you have to realize that you wouldn't be who you are or where you are today without every poor decision without every difficult moment or without every beautiful, amazing moment and victory. And you can't really have one without the other. And so, uh, you know, like I said in the very beginning, it's everything physically, mentally, emotionally has been an evolution for me. But as long as you go through life, because I didn't have, any sort of plan for so long. Like, I didn't even know what the next therapy session or the next hour held. And in the beginning, I didn't know if that breathing machine was going to need, or that ventilator was going to need to kick in for me. Right. And right. so having so much uncertainty, like if you truly are consciously thinking about your life and your time and your journey with so much uncertainty, I still had to grapple with like, okay, well, I have no idea like how or where my life is going. So like, what do I think about or tell myself about the future? And I just kind of settled on, hey, as long as you try to be a good person, you know, work hard, help out when you can, 
and just try to keep moving forward and get better. Not only do you not have to have the perfect plan or really know where you're going, but if you stick to those things, uh, it, it won't just take you far, but it will help you and lead you to reaching potential that you might not have even known was there in places that you couldn't have even imagined or people uh, you uh, might have never crossed paths with otherwise. I love, you know, one of the things is these are the moments like that moment in the kitchen. Those are the moments that, that people need to hear because those are the moments that, you know, as, as like you say, it was just this mundane moment where you were pouring a bowl of cereal, but it kind of defined like how you were going to move forward. And I love nothing more than how you have embraced who you are now, the battles you've been through. Um, I love your Instagram handle, you know, chicks dig scars. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, but I also love how you've given yourself the grace and opportunity to start anew right? Um, after you were medically retired from the Marine Corps, you went to college at University of Southern California or Carolina, excuse me. You lived in a college apartment. You joined a fraternity. I'm sure you went to football games and you allowed yourself to have that college experience. And, you know, you think about, and, and listen, you know, as a, a, wounded service member or, or somebody who's gone through something outside of service. Um, there are people, um, that allow themselves to stay on the floor in their kitchen. Right. And, and you weren't going to let that happen. Um, and, and, and I agree with you with these, this idea that you've got to get to that breaking point to start building back up. Um, how was the experience for you to, to, you know, from that moment in the kitchen to saying, I'm going to school, I'm going to embrace who I am now. How, how did that come to be? And what was that experience like for you to all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that you didn't have moments of being like, okay, you know, here I am, I'm at, you know, USC and I'm, I'm having the time of my life, right? Like, were there moments like, from that moment in the kitchen, were there similar moments of almost joy and euphoria of being like, wow, look how far I've come. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that that's life. But for me, those moments were just so much sweeter and so, uh, so much more real. Uh, and it's almost hard to articulate, but, and sorry, I'm obviously living downtown, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think it first starts with, again, uh, I don't want to be repetitive, but deep thought and taking time to think about your path and your journey. And more specifically, so I joined the Marine Corps to contribute myself and my life and my time and now my body to something bigger than myself, to, uh, to give back and to serve and whatever job or whatever capacity that was. Um, and it wasn't like, oh, I'm joining the military no matter what, no matter what I learned, what I, what I learned in life. It was really just more of a calling to want to do something bigger and to be a part of something meaningful. So after I got injured, obviously I had a lot of time with Walter Reed. As I went through that time, I was healing, I had an amazing recovery. I did a couple of internships because uh, not until you reach the end of your recovery, do you start what is called and you're familiar with this, but anyone listening, you start what's called a medical board process. And that is really just a long, painful government paperwork process 
to get you out of the military. And as much as I hate the terminology, you do all these appointments, they measure your scars, vision tests, hearing tests, and they compare all that to your, um, your paperwork and your medical exam from when you came in. And again, as much as I hate the terminology, you send all this paperwork off and you wait to get your disability rating back. Um, government tells you exactly how banged up you are. And so, uh, so uh, as I got closer towards starting my medical board, which when you start it, you have to decide, hey, do I want to stay in? Because General Amos, amazing commandant and, um, you know, the leadership at the time, they decided, hey, there's a lot of Marines that are getting injured and you, uh, people might think, oh, you get injured, you want to get out. Like, that's just how it goes. But there was a lot of Marines, I would say the majority, that were getting injured. And, yeah, they couldn't tote a machine gun in Afghanistan anymore, but they still wanted to stay in. They were a Marine first and foremost, not a wounded warrior. They were a Marine. So policies were changed. And if you get injured, you can stay in. But you do have to switch to a job that is within your uh, abilities. Right. So obviously you can't deploy if you need to be in a wheelchair. So um, I knew that I could, when it came to the point to decide, I knew that I could stay in. So in order for me to kind of help me go more confidently into my transition and decide Hey, do I want to quote unquote, hang the uniform up or do I want to stay in? I thought long and hard about it. I did a couple of internships. One was on Capitol Hill at the time. Hilariously, I was thinking about politics at the time. Uh, and then the other was I got a top secret clearance and I did an internship uh, in one of the realms of Homeland Security. And I, uh, counterterrorism work and that was an amazing internship like uh it gave me so, even more of a respect and great appreciation for all of those that work day in and day out silently to protect our country from the next 9-11 or you know the next boston marathon bombing and so uh, that was fascinating and i learned so much i had a great mentor so i did those that kind of helped get me out of the hospital get me thinking, hey, do I want to wear a suit? Do I want to go to school? What's the deal here? And um, ultimately thinking back to the reasons why I joined. Fast forward to when it was time to check, do you want to get out or stay in? I felt like I had given my very best effort to be the best Marine, the best recovering wounded warrior, that I could be. And especially with how badly I was injured, I knew that not only would I always have the Marine Corps connections and friends and family that I had, but when you're injured and you recover for so long at Walter Reed and you recover with all these other amazing wounded warriors, um, I knew that was guaranteed to never go away. And so uh, I was comforted by the fact that I would never lose those meaningful relationships. I gave my very best. So I felt like it was time and I was comfortable and confident to uh, get out of the military and move forward with life and start school. So then with my last few months at the hospital, I used those for college admissions type stuff. They made me retake. SAT, LC, whatever they're called, um, right? Uh, you know, like a, an admission paper, like why do I want to go here and all types of stuff. So I earned my entrance into the University of South Carolina. But yeah, after three years at Walter Reed, I drove out of the gate, drove straight down to Columbia, South Carolina, and I moved into my one bedroom apartment. And a week later, I was walking to class with a very different pack on my back. But, you know, through the years that followed um, and uh, to get back to your question, 
there was a lot of extremely like beautiful, sweet, victorious moments that I've had throughout my journey. And I will never forget. And with every one of those amazing moments, I always think about where I came from and those most difficult and dark of moments. And so, uh, but one in particular, early on when I was in the hospital, like still hooked up to tubes, I couldn't stand up, you know, nothing. I was alive. And in knowing that, as I laid there in the hospital bed, I was thinking like, okay, I'm still here. I'm pretty sure, hopefully I'm going to get better. You know, as the years and time goes on, what is something I can do to show myself and to prove to myself that, hey, I'm not just still here and I'm not just still Kyle, but I'm actually better and stronger than I was before. And I didn't tell anyone for years, but in this low physical, mental and emotional state, I thought, well, I've never ran a marathon before. And if I could ever get to where, you know, I can get out of this bed, I realized as I stood up for the first time, hey, if I can stand, I can work on taking a step. If I can take a step, I can work on walking, running, and maybe one day, years from now, I can attempt this marathon. And I've crossed that finish line. I'm a little like you, a little biased, but uh, all three marathons that I've uh, completed were Marine Corps marathons uh, for the Semper Five Fund in DC. And, um, but when I crossed that finish line of the first one, uh, the second two, I was just thankful that I physically survived to crawl across <laughs> the finish line. But when I crossed the first one, I immediately you know, teared up, got emotional. One, because I, in that moment, I proved to myself and I showed myself that all of those little things I had been telling myself for years, hey, give your all at therapy today. It'll make that next surgery. It'll make you heal better. It'll give you better range of motion or whatever it is, or just keep going and things will get better. Ultimately, when I crossed that finish line, I knew all of those to be true. I had thought they were all true, but I proved to myself that they were true. And even beyond that, I was overwhelmed because I knew from that point on, for the rest of my life, I could tell people, hey, you can do this. Not just a marathon, but you can just get to a point where you're out of that dark tunnel and you're to a better, happier place. And I'm not just telling you that because I believe it or because I think you can but I'm telling you this because I've done it and I know in my heart that it's true and that you can get through anything. And so uh, I'm very thankful for that, that I suffered through those because, uh, you know, like all difficult times, like we've talked about, um, good comes from it and great lessons and, um, you know, lessons that will apply to many different parts of life and, uh, you know, if you keep building on them, we'll take you far. It's, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, um, the, the Marine Corps marathon seems to be a, a reoccurring theme with a lot of my guests for how they've overcome some of their challenges. Um, probably because I have a lot of Marines on my podcast, but you know, that was, that was the first thing I did after Travis died. Uh, he died in 2007 and in 2008, I ran my first marathon never run it before, uh, never had any desire to run a marathon, but it was that same thing for me. It was like, I needed to prove to myself that I could do something that, that would get me out of that place that I was, that, that deep grief that I was facing, that, that suffering that I was going through. 
that I could look towards something to accomplish something, you know, a little bit different. Like I wasn't overcoming physical challenges, but that would make my brother proud. That would show me that I could still continue going on um, and living a life worthy of his sacrifice. So um, I talk about it in my book too. Um, Best way to move forward, run a marathon. You don't think you can run it? I promise you, you can. I was uh, just given birth to my first child. I was overweight and out of shape and, you know, puked the first day of my marathon training. But, you know, four months later, I was crossing that finish line. So when you think you can't do well, it, I promise you. you can. This, beside the pregnant aspect of it, it sounds like you just, you know, recapped my mind too. So. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the things, um, that I, I do want to touch on before we finish up that I glossed over a little bit, but I, I, I know that, um, our listeners will, will, would have wanted me to ask this question. Um, you received the medal of honor in 2014, um, uh, in a ceremony with, with president, then president Obama. Can you talk about that moment? Um, that moment where the medal of honor is is put around your neck and you know i've had the tremendous opportunity to be around uh, other medal of honor recipients and and all of them kind of share the same sentiment of you know it's it wasn't just for me it was for everyone right it, it represents so much more but what was that feeling you know it's two it's what five years after your injury you're having that that medal of honor placed around your neck. What was that moment like for you? Uh, well, at the time, probably because I was so tired and run down and they had made me do a million things in the week leading up to that. Uh, in that moment, it was so surreal and just so crazy. It was one of those moments where, you know, everything around you is like super next level, not just important, but, uh, you know, meaningful and all of these things, but it was kind of like, uh, it was so surreal. I, I almost felt like just a shell of me was standing up there. Um, but as time has gone on and really thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a Medal of Honor recipient? You know, what does this medal mean and represent? Obviously, I knew before I even got it and when I received it that um, it never has been, it never will be an individual award or recognition. I knew that it wasn't mine. And yes, I will agree with my fellow recipients uh, that, you know, uh, we weren't doing it for ourselves, obviously, or, um, but also with that said, to say we're doing it for others, every service member does that. You know, we all serve others and we all try to give, you know, above and beyond for those around us. Um, so you know, respectfully, that is such a pillar of the military. So going beyond that and dissecting, dissecting it even more, I thought about this medal represents my journey and the long and difficult and at times very painful journey that my family endured with me. All of those days that they sat by my bed and took shifts holding on to my left ankle because that's the only thing that wasn't injured to keep me from, from hopefully not continuing to hallucinate through the meds and the trauma to try to keep me in reality. Go beyond that, it represents all of the Marines that had their boots in the ground, on the ground with me in Afghanistan. Beyond that, all of those that 
have served and that have raised their right hand to give up to their lives as your brother so amazingly did for this nation and the people of this country. And beyond that, the people outside of this country, almost equally as much, the people that um, live every day in fear, under the heavy hand of oppression. The children that ask me through interpreters is everywhere in America like Disney World. The children that ask me, is there really something in your house that you can turn and fresh clean drinking water comes out of it? The children that I saw every day from the moment they could walk going into the fields from sunup to sundown to work hard labor with no shoes on, walking miles down hot gravel roads with no shoes on to go get water out of an unsanitary community drinking well with an old gas can or dirty bucket. Beyond that, the Marines and the service members from every generation that not only serve, but to think about those that at 17, 18, 19 years old knew that they most likely were not gonna make it out of that landing craft once it landed on the beach. They knew that if they made out of the landing craft, not a great chance to make it off the beach either. But because of something bigger than themselves and those that were serving around them to the right and left, when that landing door opened, they charged forward anyway. You know, those Marines that covered grenades for their fellow Marines in Vietnam. Beyond that, not just those and the generations that have selflessly and courageously served, but there are those that are still guarded at the tomb of the unknown soldiers in Arlington because we still, all these years and generations later, can't tell their families how or when exactly they gave that last full measure of devotion and took their last breath on this earth. So as time went on and, you know, as I, um, again, thought about things and, um, you know, had time to be a recipient and, and really truly understand what it means. It's, uh, it's extremely heavy. And uh, the best way I can summarize it is it's a beautiful burden. Beautiful burden. I love that. Kyle, you've been through a, a two-year journey with, um, with in, in these last couple of years, you've written a book, you've married the love of your life, which gosh, really uh, kind of sets full circle to that moment in that kitchen, telling your mom, no one will ever love me again. And you have a beautiful wife, Brittany. Um, I loved again through your mother, following all the pictures <laughs> of your wedding and then seeing you and Brittany on your honeymoon and, um, as you've come to this place, I'm going to ask you the question I ask every guest at the end of our podcast, you've gotten to such a beautiful place in your life and you're such an inspiration for others on how to move forward, how to overcome adversity and tragedy. Um, what does living a resilient life look like for you today? Every day is, if you wake up and you push through the day, you are living a resilient life. Mm 
big or small, things happen every day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing every day you get older. And with every struggle, uh, with every victory, because just like I learned, and I hope most of the people listening to this never feel those final moments um, too soon. And uh, before, I hope everyone does after a long, wonderful life. Um, but life is amazing. And the fact that, you know, put aside uh, the struggle and, and the, the great things of life, just to be here and to whatever help you have to be healthy enough to see another day and to experience time with your loved ones and time in general um, is, is really amazing. So, um, you know, appreciate time and life um, and just know that uh, as tough as it gets and can get um, to, you know, push through adversity and to, um, you know, live your life is just, um, just the greatest thing. Yeah. I don't think a lot of us today take the time to just appreciate the beautifulness that is life. Right. Um, and it's something that for what you went through, you, you understand that, uh, even more deeply than most of us. And so, um, Reminder out there for everyone listening that, you know, just take a minute to understand and appreciate life in general, that we all get to wake up today and hopefully tomorrow and have that opportunity to, to live life. Kyle, thank you so much. This has been such an honor and um, really, again, you know, I think back to the, that 10 years ago when, um, well, gosh, it's 11 years ago now when, when I first met you and to have that opportunity to uh, have that opportunity to see you come full circle, to see where you are today. It's so incredibly inspiring. You inspire me every single day. And um, I appreciate you for who you are, what you do, how you continue to push forward and how you continue to inspire others. Kyle, thank you for joining me on another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Look forward to seeing you again. You too. Thank you to all for listening to this episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends.